So one of the reasons that we've devoted this last month to a series on family and family relationships is because of the significance that those relationships have in our, in our lives. We think about our siblings or our parents, our kids, grandkids, grandparents, you know, in-laws, spouses, whatever. And, you know, in a lot of ways, these close relationships are the greatest opportunities for many of us to experience the wonder of community, to experience acceptance and encouragement and love. But at the same time, these up close and personal ongoing relationships are often the greatest contributors to pain, to hurt, to frustration, and to heartache. And so we've been kind of journeying this last month, trying to delve into some of the ways that we can alleviate the pain in order to maximize the gain of these closest relationships that God has given each of us in different ways. And we started off by uh, kind of appreciating the, the inherent tension that exists, that there's a reality to close relationships. There's a reality to family. You know, when you take fallen, broken, sin-soiled people and kind of put them together in an ongoing way, and we got to be okay with that. And yet, while being okay with that, we should aspire and can aspire to an ideal that God has for us. And to kind of set our, our sights or our expectations on just living in that tension. And then to help us, to help us do that, we, we learned uh, a couple weeks ago that you know, when we run into problems or when we're trying to strengthen those relationships, rather than looking to the other person, we should look to ourselves. And we discovered the wonder of what the Bible teaches about Holy Spirit-empowered, others-oriented submission. Making your life about the other and not expecting them to make their life about you. And then last week we looked at what the Bible says about resolving conflict. You know, when things really get tough. And uh, you learn things like talking directly to people and not about them. And taking the responsibility to initiate and to resolve conflict as quickly and quietly as possible so that we can restore relationships. And it feels like through this month, we've been kind of wading in deeper and deeper into those moments or situations of pain in order, like I said, to kind of optimize the gain of these special relationships that God gives us called our family. And I feel like today is the, the deepest water that we're going to dive into at of all. Um, today we're going to talk about those moments, um, not just of conflict, but those moments that we inevitably have in, especially in these close relationships where, you know, it might stop, start off very innocently with an issue or a circumstance, but pretty soon things spiral down to the point where all of a sudden you're looking at that loved one and wondering how it is that this person who supposedly ought to care about you could oppose you so strongly, could be that against you, or could be that in conflict to the point where, and the, this is the language I'm going to use because it's, it's true for me, to the point where you feel like the very people God has given you as your teammates have actually become your enemies. Have you ever felt that before? Have you ever felt or been in a situation where things have spiraled and escalated and, and, and intensified to the point where the people that you expect to have your back the most, that you expect to be the most on your team, are the most opposed, the harshest in conflict, 
and it feels like your loved ones have actually become your enemy. You ever wondered what to, what to do in a situation like that? Well, that's what we're going to dive into this morning. And just to kind of start off with the big idea today, I, I guess what I want to do is, is kind of set the direction of where we're going to head. Because in those situations in particular, and particularly with people of faith, when we find ourselves in close relationship, feeling like the other person is the enemy, if you're taking notes, here's the big idea. When you're in close relationship, feeling like that other person is the enemy, chances are that they're not actually the real enemy. That's what we're going to talk about today. Making the real enemy in those situations, the real enemy to get us out of the pain of that deep water of difficult relationship. And so I want to start just by introducing the biblical idea that there is, from God's perspective, at a spiritual level, an enemy. Jesus described him this way in John chapter 10, 10. Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that people may have life and have it to the full. And contrasting Jesus' own purpose and work to bring people life, he contrasts that with this entity that he describes as a thief or the thief. And he says that the thief's job is actually to contravene the very purposes that he exists for, to basically thwart the purposes of God, to steal and kill and destroy, to take away what God is, is up to and, and building, to kill what God is birthing, to destroy what God is growing. This thief directly opposes the purposes of God and in that sense is an enemy of God at the spiritual Level. And what I find interesting is when Jesus is talking about himself, contrasting himself with the thief, he kind of does that matter-of-factly in the sense that he assumes that his audience is acutely aware of these spiritual dynamics and that there actually is an enemy that exists to thwart and sabotage the purposes of God in the world. And so before we go any further, I feel like I need to call a quick timeout to ensure that we're all on that same page. Whether we've ever assumed that before or that's ever crossed our minds before, or not. Because for some of us, I suspect that when we think about a spiritual enemy of God, we think about evil in the spiritual world, and we think about terms like the devil or Satan, other terms that the Bible uses to describe God's spiritual enemy, I think that the closest that we get to many of those things are costumes that come and trick-or-treat on Halloween. And I'm not sure that we fully appreciate the reality that as real as the invisible but very pervasive work of God in the world, there exists just as real and invisible an enemy of God that exists throughout human history to contravene, to sabotage, and to thwart the purposes of God in the world. There is a spiritual enemy, and that spiritual enemy is real, even today. Point two, then, is to appreciate that if what God is up to in the world the most, or what God cares about the most, is people and relationships, well, then it should only make sense that the focal point of the enemy's attention would be people and relationships, especially people who are aspiring to live a life of faith in God. 
That's what the Apostle Paul warns first century believers about in a church uh, called Ephesus. Reading from Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12 where he teaches them that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Paul is affirming, just as Jesus did, that evil is a reality, and not just kind of a theoretical, kind of conceptual idea. Evil is an entity. Evil, in a sense, is a person is this enemy of God that he is acutely aware of. And his warning to that first century church is that this enemy doesn't take weekends off. They don't take, you know, holidays. They don't work nine to five. This enemy is on the prowl all the time in any way, aggressively seeking to sabotage what God is up to in the kind of intensity that Paul describes as attack. That, that he actually wants people to understand the aggressiveness, the intensity with which this enemy is trying to get at the very thing that God cares about the most, the people of God and the relationships in their lives with him and with each other. That's what the enemy is seeking to sabotage in an ongoing, very intense attack level kind of way. And again, I feel like a, a little bit of a need to call a timeout because what that doesn't mean is that every single thing that happens that's bad in the world is the product of the enemy. Someone, you know, gets sick and it's, it's not just because the, the enemy got them sick or anything like that. This is just a product of the, the fallen condition of our society. As well, the reality of the spiritual intensity of attack of God's spiritual enemy doesn't mean that every time you and I deviate or make a choice to drift from God's desi design, sorry, that we can immediately shirk that responsibility and say, oh, you know, it was the devil that made me do it. The Bible is very clear that God has given humanity in desiring a love relationship with us. He's given humanity the gift of free will. He's given us the capacity to make our own choices. And on top of that, the Bible teaches that no temptation that a human faces is beyond what a person is capable to bear. And so if you and I make choices that deviate or drift from God's design, it's not the enemy's fault. The devil doesn't make us do things. But what the spiritual enemy of God does is seek to influence what we do and seek to influence the choices we make. And if we're going to understand how to react to that spiritual enemy, we've got to first learn how they choose to work. Because the Bible describes some very consistent and kind of key strategies that the spiritual enemy of God tries to use in your life and in mine. Jesus described it a bit in John 8, when he says the enemy was a murderer from the beginning. They seek to sabotage and, and end life. But Jesus says, not holding to the truth, there is no truth in him. Because when he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. See, what the Bible teaches is that the number one strategy of God's spiritual enemy is the strategy of deception and manipulation. And what the spiritual enemy does when they attack people in relationships the most is they whisper lies into our hearts and heads and into our psyche that at times they can manipulate us into choosing to believe. You know, the spiritual enemy whispers 
lies about God into your heart and to mine. God could never love you. You've done way too much for God to accept you. God will never forgive you of that. You're going to really have to do a lot more than that to pull up your bootstraps to make God accept you. And on and on and on it goes. And our relationship with God gets hindered because we actually buy into lies that the enemy is whispering as he focuses on attacking you and me. And the same thing, unfortunately, is true in our relationships, especially when we get into conflict and we start to believe that this person doesn't care about us and we start to believe that this person's out to get us and down and down and down it goes until all of a sudden we buy into the single greatest lie of all and that is that this loved one, this person that God has placed in our lives in a close loving relationship, that they actually have become our enemy and not the real enemy. Reminds me of a quote from Kevin Spacey in a movie about 20 years ago when he said, the greatest, twi- greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he never exists. And in a lot of ways, I think, especially in our relationships with other people, when we find ourselves in that moment where we are just aching because the very people we're counting on to be on our team and to be supporting us are so chronically against us, and we feel like our loved ones have become our enemies, when we actually buy into that, we're allowing the enemy to win because we're buying into that lie rather than appreciating that the real enemy is actually our enemy. Not only God's enemy, but our enemy and the enemy of our relationships. You know, and this might seem kind of kind of simple, but I was just reflecting on it in the last couple of weeks in my own life and kind of taking an inventory and I, you know, being hypersensitive to it in the last couple of weeks preparing for this morning, I, I, I was actually amazed with how quickly my head and heart can go there and how frequently I can start to go down that, that slippery slope. I mean, with teammates at work and friends and colleagues and you know, all kinds of people, let alone my family, my kids and you know, parents and in-laws and, and especially with Becky. I, I got to say, it was just the other day, we were having a conversation and the, the precipitating incident was this harmless. The precipitating incident was that I discovered Becky had scheduled something for a time that I had already scheduled something that was important to, to me and to our family. So that's all that happened. Okay, a bit more objective now. And you know, the way that my head started to process that and to think, well, why did she schedule something when she knew that, you know, we had this booked and this was really, oh, well, maybe she didn't know. And how did she not know? Well, maybe she didn't care. And how could she not care? Well, maybe she doesn't care. And how could, why doesn't she care? How come she's opposing this? And how, and down and down I go. And in five minutes, a benign issue becomes this feeling like Becky actually has become my enemy. And I'll tell you, it happens so fast. And I I was hypersensitive to it in the last couple of weeks. And I could catch myself going down that spiral. And I thought, I haven't even realized how easily I can buy into those lies that the enemy is manipulating and subversively whispering into my psyche to believe. And, you know, as a pastor as well, uh, I see this and hear this all the time when I talk to people and and sit down with families or couples or parents and kids and whatever. And and the, the saddest ones 
I'll tell you. The saddest situations are not just when people allow themselves to believe that lie for a moment, but rather when people allow them, themselves to believe that lie so continuously and so consistently and so chronically that they begin to cement it as a foregone conclusion. And when that happens, that's why relationships end. Because they just give up hope that anything's going to change and this loved one isn't going to become anything more than our prime opposition. This loved one has become our enemy and we just kind of have to write them off. And it's so sad because I know that, you know, in a parent-child relationship, no, no parent, no parent that I've met at least ever holds their newborn baby and thinks, wow, what a beautiful little enemy I've got here. <laughs> Nobody feels that in their heart of hearts. No couple that I've ever met that I've seen at a, at a wedding altar has held hands and looked each other, gazed into each other's eyes and pledged to be each other's enemy. That never happens. That's not what's going on in the hearts of people. That's not what people want for each other and for our families. But somehow over time, we allow ourselves to believe that and we allow ourselves to, to get chronic about that belief until it's cemented as a foregone conclusion. And when that happens, the enemy has, has really won, hasn't they? Haven't they? Because the real enemy then allowed someone else through deceiving us to become the real enemy in our life and relationship. And thankfully today, the Bible teaches and the kind of the core message of the person and work of Jesus Christ is that through Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus fully and finally once and for all defeated God's spiritual enemy. And the invitation to follow Jesus is to actually experience his victory in our lives to a greater degree. And through a couple spiritual and practical steps that I want to talk about today, we can actually kind of turn the spiral the other way instead of spiraling downward, buying into the enemy's lies as they attack us in our, our relationships. It starts with some spiritual strategies by trusting in Christ to a greater degree. And when I say trusting in Christ, I don't just mean like, yeah, Jesus, I believe that you exist. I believe that you died and rose again. And I believe that you can forgive my sins. So I'll allow you to do that. And I'll see you in heaven when I'm dead kind of a thing. That's not the kind of trust in Christ I'm talking about. I'm talking about the kind of trust in Christ that the apostle Paul talks about before he talked about that spiritual antagonism and attack that the enemy provides people. In verse 10 of Ephesians chapter six, he says this. He says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Paul says there is a way to actually resist the intensity and the temptation and the deception and manipulation and attack of God's spiritual enemy. It's called the strength that God provides. And to access the strength that God provides, Paul says we're to put on what he calls the full armor of God. Armor simply being a metaphor for equipment or resources that God provides to protect us from the attacks of the enemy. And you can read Ephesians 6 yourself. The passage goes on to describe some of that armor as things like righteousness, right choices, or exercising faith and trust in God. 
Things like prayer or rootedness in the scriptures. Anchoring ourselves in God's truth so that we can contravene and reject and deny the half or part truths that the enemy seeks to try to manipulate us to believe. That's step number one, is simply to realize the desperate dependence that we need in God in order to actually survive, let alone thrive in relationships that have gotten to the point or are in those moments where we're feeling like our loved ones have become our enemies. And it might sound simple, but I cannot tell you how significant this is. In fact, years ago, Becky and I were having a conversation. We were actually writing down lists of some of the top ways that we could be a support to one another. And we were getting real practical, like, you know, put your shoes away from the front hall carpet level practical. This was just a basic exercise. It wasn't supposed to be anything flashy. But, but Becky was kind of taken by surprise by what was on the very top of my list. And I'd written it down right away. And, and it was heads and tails above all the other things that I was going to provide. And I don't know why she was surprised, maybe as a... Maybe as a woman, she thought that as a guy, there were other things that were at the top of my list as far as ways that she could express love for me. I'm not going to talk about them today, but you can kind of, you know, too much information, I know. Anyways, um, what surprised her was at the top of my list was this. Don't neglect starting your day with some quiet time with God. Never neglect starting your day with Quiet time with God. And I put that at the top of my list without even having to think about it. Not because I wanted her to get in some religious activity and go through the motions of some spiritual checkbox that she could check to feel spiritual or that that's part of the job description of being married to a pastor or anything silly like that. It's because I understand that the only way that our marriage is going to survive, the only way our family is going to survive, let alone thrive, is not through the efforts of her and me, but through the degree to which we can allow Jesus and his victorious resurrection power to manifest through us in the way that we relate to one another. And so in a first things first kind of way, I want our family to build that habit, not just for what it does in those first moments, but for the way that it weaves into our psyche for the rest of the moments of our day because of that. That's the kind of step that you can be encouraged to take to put on the armor of God, to equip yourself, to resource yourself with the spiritual strength that God provides and to increasingly fully trust in the victory that Jesus wants to make available for you. That's one of the ways that the Bible says we can resist the enemy and his attacks and as we make the real enemy the, the real enemy. The other thing though at a very practical level in our relationships that we can do is not just trust in Christ but as we're trusting in Christ we can extend trust to the other person as well. Follow my logic. When we, when we actually appreciate who the real enemy really is and appreciate that this person that feels like the enemy isn't the enemy, we can start to extend the benefit of the doubt. We can start to, we can start to believe in, in the best. And then we can start to extend trust in them. And trust, just, just so we're clear, trust isn't a f you know, feeling good about a person because all the data tells us to. That's not, excuse me, that's not trust. That's a feeling of safety. Trust is a choice that people make when the data doesn't tell us to. It's the choice that bridges the gap where there is no data to believe in a person but says, I'm gonna believe in you anyway. That's what trust is. And the scriptures say in 1 Corinthians 13 that love 
always protects. Love always trusts. Love always hopes and love always perseveres. And what happens, spiritually speaking, is as we rely on the person and the presence of Jesus and his victorious power to a greater degree, he begins to manifest himself and do work from the inside out in our lives. And one of the ways that he changes us and one of the ways that he can equip us is by giving us that capacity to trust. And I'll tell you, the capacity to make the choice to extend trust, especially to the motives of people when they're hurting us, at a practical level, gang, it can make all the difference in your relationships. You know, you think about what typically happens in, in a simple conversation. The moment there's conflict or the moment there's an issue, you know, you'll have a person and they'll say, you know, um, you know sweetheart or you know, mom or dad or whatever, you, know, you hurt me in such and such a way. You hurt me. And what we need to be clear about is when someone says you hurt me or I was hurt by, that's an impact statement. That's a statement of impact. But when it doesn't come with trust, it can suggest that it's actually a statement of intent, not just of impact. And often when a person says you hurt me, you know how the other person responds? They'll say, well, I didn't mean to. And they'll go on and describe what their motivation from their perspective actually was. And you, do you know what that does when they talk about their intent? When a person makes an impact statement that says, you hurt me. It actually makes the hurt person feel like they're not being listened to or heard. Because the person that they've shared their hurt with isn't reacting to the hurt. They're reacting to themselves and they're appearing defensive. And they're trying to kind of, they're coming across as kind of justifying and rationalizing their motivation. And so because this person doesn't feel heard by the person who's describing their intent, they only dig their heels in deeper and say, no, 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 but, but, but that really hurt. And they probably describe it in further graphic detail and go deeper into describing the impact, which only makes this person feel like their description of their intent wasn't heard, which only makes them go deeper into describing their intent. And so this person responds by retorting by, you know, re re responding by a, a stronger message of, hurt on their impact, and down and down and down and down it goes. Until the point where you finally realize that I'm not being heard, and why am I not being heard? Because I'm not being cared about, and you start to believe these lies, and pretty soon, the people closest to you are your enemy. Where if a conversation starts with trust and says, you know what? I know that you didn't deserve, you, you didn't mean to do this. I know that you didn't intend to hurt me in this way. I know that you love me, and I appreciate that, but you gotta know, this really hurt me. Those disclaimers that start with trust disarm this person. And because this person's been disarmed and their trust has been affirmed, they don't need to rationalize and justify and explain away their, their motives. They're already trusted. And it frees them up to focus on the impact. And by focusing on the impact, they can say, wow, you know, I didn't mean to do that, but I'm really sorry I did. And then it's done. You hurt me while I'm sorry. Move on. Issue over. And I thought about this, and Becky and I talked a lot about this, how if we're trusting, we can end a, a difficult conversation in about three minutes, but, but if we're not, and it starts to spiral downhill, well, that, that can go in all kinds of nasty places. And it's incredible how significant that single gift of choosing to trust and to give the gift of trust to another person can be. But through trusting in Christ 
and desperately requiring him to provide the spiritual resources to combat the attacks and antagonism of the enemy, we can actually learn to make that choice in increasing ways. And you know, the cool part is as real and as on the move and as focused on people and people of faith and our relationships with God and one another that the enemy is, you and I can actually experience the victorious work of Christ when we allow Jesus to do this kind of work in us. I, I, I've experienced this myself. I've seen this in other people. I've seen God revolutionize relationships as people have opened up their heart to his victorious work. And I'll admit that sometimes it takes a lot of courage to talk about that because you, you really need to talk about the, the dark parts of your relationship and the way that God brought light into them. But uh, recently, uh, a family from our community, a couple from our Welland location named Andy and Bev Nondorf were willing to sit down with us and share a little bit of their journey in their family life, particularly in their marriage. And so to just give you another picture of what practically speaking this can look like, I want you to check out the story of their marriage. Check this out. said at the very beginning that one of the reasons we spent a month focusing on the dynamics of our families is because of the significance that those relationships play in our lives, both for pain and for gain. The other reason that we devoted this last month to a series on family is because of just how significant a difference Jesus actually can make. It's incredible to think the difference that Jesus can make when we let him. And I know it might sound kind of cliche that, that Jesus wants to make a difference, but in the, in the stories of people like Andy and Bev and the dozens, if not hundreds, of other examples and stories across our community, it's real. And you got to know today that we're sharing stories like this with you because we want that story to be true of you. And more importantly, Jesus wants that story to be true of you. You got to know today, no matter how much pain you're in, in those close relationships that matter the most to you, that Jesus loves you and he died and rose again for you. And he's uh, achieved victory and conquered sin and death and the enemy once and for all and wants to pour that victorious power into you if you'll let him. And today he invites you to follow him and to follow him more fully than ever before. Not so that he can get some stuff out of you, but so that he can pour that victorious life into you. And as he does, he can resource us and enable us to make the real enemy the enemy. So remember next time when you're in that moment and feeling like the very person you're counting on to be on your team is actually opposing you as if they were the enemy, that they're not actually the real enemy. And if we awaken to the reality of the real enemy and open ourselves up to the reality of the victorious presence of Christ and allow him to change our approach and the way that we relate, you and I can experience the wonder of the kind of community that God has given us in the gift that we call family. Let's pray together.
God in heaven, as we wrap this series up, I just want to pray across all of our locations for all of our family units, for all of our family dynamics, for all of the parent-child dynamics and all of the grandparent-grandkid dynamics and all of the in-law, sibling, spousal relationships and, and even extended family, God. You know how awesome they can be, but certainly, God, you know how hurtful they can be. And, and for every one of us, I'm sure that our heart aches because of the pain that the fallenness and brokenness of our world creates uh, in close personal family dynamics. But I pray like never before, God, that you would open our minds, you would open our hearts to the good news of the gospel, to the good news of the saving and forgiving work of Jesus and to the power of his death and resurrection and what it can be in our lives. I pray that you would make us aware that there is actually someone seeking to sabotage our relationships, not only with ourselves, but with you and with one another. And I pray that we would open our hearts up to your victorious work like never before. And as we do, that you would change us from the inside out like never before. And as you do and you strengthen and reverse the tide and trend of those relationships, that we would give you the credit like never before as we seek to depend and rely and focus on and devote ourselves to you like never before. Make us those people, God. Make us those families. And make us able to testify to a watching world at the spectacular difference even today, that you want to and can make in ordinary fallen, broken people and families like us. And help us to celebrate as we live in that tension, accepting the real, but passionately pursuing the ideal for our close relationships that your son Jesus enables. It's in his wonderful, precious, and victoriously powerful name that we pray all these things today. Amen.